in the medieval area, people exalted nine exemplars of courage and chivalry. The French called them le neuf preux. The Germans, neun gute Helden, nine good heroes. Um, a 14th century carving immortalizes these nine good heroes, these valiant ones, that hangs in the, the Hansa Hall in Cologne, Germany. And among the nine exemplary figures are renowned names that we know of, like Alexander the Great. There's Caesar. There's King Arthur. But at the center of them, flanked by four figures on either side, is none other than King David. This morning, we return to that king, that Guta Heldon, that good hero, that great hero, David. If you have a copy of the Christian Bible, would you please locate 2 Samuel 10? It's in part one of the Bible. It's been some time since we've looked at David's life. He is indeed one of the greatest heroes in history, the greatest kings. And carvings like the one in in City Hall in Cologne, Germany, or or even Michelangelo's David in Florence, Italy, captures the grandeur of David's life. And when we come back to 2 Samuel 2, the words that Brutus gave to Cassius in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar have come to pass now for David. There is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. In 2 Samuel 10, David sits on the throne, but it hasn't been easy. It's never easy for a king. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. David has survived several attempts on his own life by the previous king, a king named Saul, who was also his father-in-law. David united a divided kingdom. He subdued arch enemies with names like the Philistines. He founded a city called Jerusalem, a city that even today is still in the middle of global politics. He brought peace far and wide. He's treated his enemies, even the sons of his enemies, with restraint and civility. He's shown unusual grace, loyalty to keep his word unimpeachable justice, even in dealing with those who tried to curry favor with him by killing off one of David's rivals. Indeed, the opening chapters of 2 Samuel show us a series of vignettes that are meant to hold up David as the ideal king, that David is the best king. He's the only king. He's God's king. After all, in 2 Samuel 7, God made David his chosen king, a king through whom he's going to bless all the ends of the earth and then set in the flow then of the Bible's overarching story, this historical king, this heroic King David then serves as a type. He prefigures the greatest of all kings to come, a king from David's own line, Jesus Christ, who's marvelously hailed in the historical documents of the New Testament as the son of David. So David's greatness then lies not in who he is, but all the more in who he points to. Jesus Christ, the son of David, who is the king of kings, who is the Lord over all lords. And in a much, much lesser sense, friends, the most important thing about you and our lives is the same thing. Not who we are, but who our lives point to. That's what's most important about our life. Thus, when we read of King David in the Bible, it's imperative that we not only look at David, but we put David on like a pair of glasses and look through them to see great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Do I put it this way? God chose David's life to be a movie trailer for the marquee event of his son. That in the present life and experiences of David the king, we get a preview, albeit imperfectly, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. To change it, David's life paints an impressionistic portrait that one day gives way to a realism portrait of Jesus Christ. And David's life does that today as we come back to 2 Samuel and we come back to 2 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to see, I hope, how the experiences of this real king point forward to Jesus, the son of David. We're going to read this in sections. We'll only get through the first 12 verses today. Let's read verses 1 and 2 in 2 Samuel 10 that provide a setting for yet another story in which God's king shows kindness. Listen to God's king showing kindness. 2 Samuel 2, this is what Holy Scripture says. 
After this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. This is the word of the Lord. Now, two things surprise us as this movie opens in chapter 10. The first surprise comes with the appearance of the Ammonites. The Ammonites are a storied enemy of Israel, descendants from an incestuous relationship from long ago. And when you put Ammon together with the names of Moab and Edom, the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites formed an unholy trinity of terror against Israel. So it's a surprise that here we have the Ammonites showing up in the middle of David's reign as it begins. But more than this, the greater surprise is what David does to this storied enemy in the chapter. We would expect a call to arms, perhaps. Maybe David, you know, prepares to attack the Death Star of the Amorites, the Ammonites. That's what we expect. But what does David do surprisingly in verse 2? Did you see it? I will deal loyally with his father as he dealt loyally with me. We might even translate this as kindness. I will deal kindly as his father dealt kindly with me. Indeed, if you went back to chapter 9 and you just looked at the opening verses of chapter 9, that's how this word is translated there as kindness. And maybe you recall that, that, that this word in the Hebrew text behind this word kindness or loyalty shows up as mercy or steadfast love or grace everywhere else in the Old Testament. It refers to promised covenant loyalty, undeserved kindness, steadfast mercy. It refers to love and loyalty originating entirely from the person giving it, often undeservingly given to another individual. So it's kindness, it's loyalty, it's undeserved kindness, it's steadfast love that won't flinch. So the movie of chapter 9 and the sequel here in chapter 10 are linked by this idea of covenant loyalty, of undeserved kindness. Whereas in chapter 9, King David shows us his, his surprising kindness to an insider in Israel, a man named Mephibosheth. Now in chapter 10, David shows undeserved kindness not to an insider, but to an outsider. And to, of all people, somebody in the line of the Ammonites. Here is the surprising kindness of God's king. Now, we don't know all the particulars of of the kind of kindness and why David shows it here. But 1 Samuel 11 records the, the day that the Ammonites were defeated by David's predecessor, King Saul. At some point, perhaps, while David's a fugitive trying to escape the repeated death threats of Saul, Nahash... The king of the Ammonites gives David quarter. He gives him refuge. Now David remembers that kind of kindness and he wants to repay it in a sense. Well, King Nahash is now gone. And his son Hanun rules as the next Ammonite king. And it can be lonely at the top, especially when somebody like your dad dies. Who are you going to turn to for advice now? Dad, what what did you do? What should I do? Well, hearing of his death, David sends an official envoy of servants to offer comfort and to show respect for his recently deceased dad. It's an act of humanity. It is a comfort to children, Matthew Henry remarks, that when parents are dead, they find that their parents' friends become theirs and that they intend to keep up an acquaintance with them. It's a comfort to mourners to find that there are those who mourn with them, are sensible of their loss, and share in it with them. It's a comfort to those who are honoring the memory of their deceased relations to find that others likewise honor that lost life and had value for the one they value but is now gone. Thus, here is God's great king not only showing surprising kindness to the Ammonites, but showing sincere sympathy to a fellow image bearer, whatever his relationship was to Jehovah, the God of Israel. What a king David is. How unusual in his kindness. How moved with tender compassion 
send my, my best envoy of servants to comfort the son of this Ammonite man. Why? His dad just died. And friends, before we move on, if you keep looking at David here, look long enough to look through him and you will see a, a better king than David. And through King David, we see King Jesus who shows kindness to undeserving people like you and like me. A kindness so great that while we were sinners, he died for us. A kindness so large, a heart so big that he takes our sins and he takes our sorrows and he makes them his very own and is not ashamed to call us brothers and identify with us. Behold the surprising kindness, not of David, but of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. Behold his compassion. Do you know him? Do you know him? What happens next in the movie evokes yet another surprise. Let's keep watching as the action starts to rise, and we're going to see the response to the kindness of God's king, verses 3 and 4. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he's actually honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search out the city, to spy it out, then to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half their beard of each, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. This too is the word of the Lord. Now we move from the surprising kindness of God's king to the scorned kindness of God's king. Who would have seen this turn? David offers this unusual kindness, uh, an act of sympathy in the midst of grief, and it's met with, uh, with evil suspicion. All David was trying to do was help. But his kindness is interpreted as evil. I recall talking with a pastor in times past who said with a measure of confused grief, I've done nothing but try to help them. And now they're misrepresenting me and our church. Yes, that's where David is. His good is being evil spoken of. It's the confused, hurting cry of Psalm 120, verse 7. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. We could stop for a moment, briefly, and think, why did these men interpret such a kindness as a threat? We don't fully know, but... Let's jump forward to a a deeply divided church in the New Testament in Corinth where everybody is fighting. And Paul holds up the ideal of love to a deeply divided congregation and says, love believes all things and it bears all things and it hopes all things. And love doesn't ever think any evil. And love rejoices in the truth. But in 2 Samuel 10, they do just the opposite. They read harm into actions that are not there. David, I'm for peace, but they are for war. Beloved, if if we view the actions of one another, fellow believers inside our congregation with evil suspicion, if we set someone's words or actions in the least positive light, if morsels of slander become our first instinct to share, then we're shaming the ones Christ died to save even as these men shamed David's kindness and his men here. Out of evil, evil suspicion or envy, they misinterpret David's kindness and they soon will incite a war in which mothers will cry because their sons don't come home and wives are now widows and daughters no longer have dads because these men read evil into kindness. Behold how how great Fire the tongue can set. It's a world of iniquity. The best intentions can be twisted, and when that's done, they show the perversity of our own heart. So take heed, Paul can say to a church in Galatia, take heed to a church that you don't bite and devour one another. Are you at this moment misrepresenting someone's kindness to you as these men did here? Contrary to these men, love believes all things and bears all things and rejoices in the truth. 
not innuendo and unsubstantiated reports and evil suspicion. And yet David's life shows us that while we should never be the ones who interpret, who interpret kindness as evil to others, we should not be surprised when followers of the king that our kindnesses are often slandered. That's David's men here doing the king's bidding. I mean, centuries and centuries removed from 2 Samuel 10, Jesus, the son of David, can turn to his own followers in the midst of of people turning on Jesus and say, blessed are you when men persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. What's the next word? Falsely. For my sake. That's the lot of every true follower of Jesus. We are in good company, Jesus said. If they hate me, they will hate you. Now, beloved, this is not to walk around with a martyr's complex, but a reminder that we will often suffer slander, our motives misrepresented simply because we're speaking and showing God's love and kindness in the dark. This is just a very small example. You could think of others. But just this week, my wife and I spoke with a lady on a certain civic board in town, a Christian lady who's simply trying to uphold a modicum of decency and appropriateness, particularly keeping pornographic material from young children as if that kind of desire should ever be controversial. The emperor has no clothes on in our county. George Orwell's animal farm is in full operation when in a public meeting in our own city, 12 voices are shouting in anger and they're all alike. No question now what had happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside look from the pigs to man, from man to the pig, and from pig to man again. But already it's impossible to say which was which. This lady and others are being tarred and feathered with a phobic label in 2023. And this is the animal farm we're in. And praise the Lord for this sister just speaking up for virtue into the dark. And people will persecute us for holding up truth. Don't you ever be persecuted. Or don't you ever, Peter says, be shamed because of your sin. Don't you drag the name of Christ into your sin. Don't you sin. Don't you, don't you suffer for evil's sake, he says. But you will suffer. You will suffer when you hold up truth and beauty and goodness as David had here. Why? Because you're holding up truth, beauty, and goodness. And where does this go? The scorn kindness of David, doesn't it take us to the scorn kindness of King Jesus? They crucified the Lord of glory. There was no kinder, compassionate, more virtuous soul. And they killed him precisely because he was virtuous. An old Anglican bishop once said, There is nothing so well meant, but it may be ill interpreted. And men do this. Men who do this love nobody but themselves. And blessed are all who follow in the the steps of the scorned Christ for righteousness sake. Blessed are you. These men have done nothing wrong. And they're shamed for being identified with a king in his bidding. Hanun's men publicly scorn and humiliate David's noble servants. These ambassadors of mercy. They cut their beards and then they shave them naked. In a culture in that day where there were clear Beautiful lines, appropriate lines marking out men and women by shaving off their beards. They're mocking their manhood publicly. And by shaving off half of the beard, just just half of the beard, they're saying, you're half a man. You're still a prepubescent man. You're a girly man. It's definitely not a moment these men wanted their Be Real app to be going off in their pocket. And then the text literally says this. Maybe you have a translation. The New Living Translation says this. They cut their garments at the half all the way up until their buttocks. I explained this to my family this week. We chuckled a bit at their expense, and that's the point that's happening. Hanun's servants want us to laugh at David's men, emasculated, humiliated, standing before us with half a beard, shaved naked up to the buttocks. Laugh at them. There they are. They turn David's noble men, emissaries of the king's kindness, into a punchline of their jokes and then dismiss them out of the city. And if the scene can be made worse, think of this. It's normal in the times of war, particularly in the ancient Near East, in cultures rich with hospitality, customs, that you treat the ambassadors of another country with respect, even offering a measure of diplomatic protection while you parlay, so to speak. But even that's been disregarded. 
So as one historian notes, now we're beholding indignities heaped on David's men and a grotesque parody of the normal symbolic actions of courtesy that should accompany such a visit. A grotesque parody. It's like laughing at a funeral, protesting there, insulting, demeaning, rude. And the Ammonites have responded to the surprising kindness of God's king with an appalling scorn. Behold the scorned kindness of God's king. Now we're going to watch what David does. He's he's got his intelligence officers. Intelligence reports come back to David, and he hears the news of the shaming. And what does he do in verse 5? And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for these men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. I want you to think that in spite of this deep insult, David does not mobilize for war. Throughout this passage, he's not the aggressor. His first instinct is is being a principled man of his word, a a purveyor of kindness. He comes off as long-suffering, patiently enduring evil. And not only that, his first instinct is not to protect his honor, but to protect his men who've been shamed. His first move is for his men. He wants to heap honor on those who've been dishonored. He wants to honor those men who've now been deeply shamed, who've done his bidding. Stay at Jericho until your beards grow back. No need to show your faces back home again until you look like a man and your dignity is restored. David is covering their unjust shame so they can come back in honor. Do you see now the, the scorned king now covering the, covering the shame, the sheltering kindness of God's king to those who are unjustly shamed? What a day it will be when anyone who has been reproached for naming the name of Christ will hear before all, well done, my good and faithful servant. In part one of this movie, 2 Samuel 10, we have the spurned kindness of God's king, this appalling reaction. It's a breach on many levels. It's a scandal. It's a hit below the belt. It's a public, it's a middle finger in the public with a camera in your face. This is the scorned kindness of God's king. Let's pause for a moment. Can we say that we're watching this movie on TV and the commercial comes up and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hit mute while the commercials play and we're going to talk about for a moment what we've just seen. Remember that David's experiences point to a greater king to come. Now just think for a moment. The hostility here then in 2 Samuel 10 is merely part of the hostility predicted in Genesis 3 when Satan was going to strike out against the seed of the woman, against God's line and God's king and kill him. And here is Satan striking out against God's king. And of course, there's the Lord Jesus. There's the son of David, the fairest of all the sons of the earth, the noblest of kings hanging on a cross, wanted at that moment by neither heaven nor earth because he was too vile for heaven at that moment and he was too virtuous for earth. The kings of the earth had had taken counsel together. Their advisors had given them instruction and their, their, their conclusion was this, let us break him. Behold the scorned kindness of God's king on the cross. Your gift of love they crucified. They laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. And now what of us? Think of this, friend. God is blamed for all the evil in the world, but he's never praised for any of its goodness. A thousand airplanes took off yesterday. Not one crashed, and all the people got off and walked into the arms of their loved ones. Yet not one news reporter or blog person wrote an article and said, you know, there just might be a God after all. The sun and the rain fell this week on the just and the unjust, and we needed both. Yet no one wrote an article this week and said, just maybe there's a God. We blame God for all the evil in the world and praise him for none of its goodness. This is our response to scorn. Scorning is kindness. And more than that, we use the kindness of God in our lives for selfishness and evil. Think of the kindnesses that come to you every day, every moment. How many breaths this morning have entered your lungs and gone back out again, one after another? 
eyes to see in color, just in time for the colors of spring. And taste buds that seem to provide us with a, a palate for an infinite flavor combination so that you can always say, I've never tasted that before. And the warmth of the sun on your skin, the sun after the rain like yesterday, a remembered melody, a kiss, a job, a well-set table, a shoulder to cry on. And what do you use those for? Do you ever acknowledge the God behind all of those things? We assume there are birthrights, that God owes these things to us if he does exist. Every day he loads us up with blessings, with kindnesses, but we, I think, like the Ammonites, despise the riches of his grace, forgetting that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. I think one of the ways our sin is most often shown is by what we do with the gifts that God gives to us. We are glory thieves. We are plagiarists. We rip God off, claiming his work as our own. We take credit for everything. The breath, that's mine. The body, that's mine. The desires, that's mine. And when we use them all to express ourselves in whatever medium we do at school or, or church, the glory that's meant for God we take for ourselves. We're cosmic plagiarists. We're rip-off artists. That's thievery. You see, when you look at the story, we're not King David. We're the Ammonites in the story. We've scorned the kindness of the king. For now, have you come to see that you have scorned the kindness of Jesus? And now we move from the scorned kindness of God's king now to part two of the movie. The commercials are getting over. It's about ready to come back on. And we're going to undo the mute button. And here's what we're going to see. Not the scorned kindness of God's king, but now the courage and faith of the king's servant. Let's read six to ten. What happens next? When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians and Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Makkah with a 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. When David heard it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. And Joab saw that the battle was against him, both in front and in the rear. He chose some of the Beth men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of the men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and arrayed them against the Ammonites. This is God's word. You see verse 6? The Ammonites realized they had really stepped in it. They had become a stench to David. They're foolish, stupid impetuous acts now would lead to an all-out war. Somebody said a bit humorously that their actions of shaming David's servants were a bit like climbing into an electric chair and then wondering if, does this switch work? It's sheer folly what they've done. They've incited war. And then instead of apologizing to David, putting themselves at his mercy, they doubled down at their sin. David has shown them an an unusual amount of mercy. That's his story in these opening chapters. Surely that's known of David too. They could have humbled themselves, apologized, even for a breach of social etiquette and, and a lack of courtesy. But their guilt, whatever they had, led them to double down on it. They responded to their folly with more folly. They were going to blame David for their sin. We have to take arms now. He's heard. He's heard. He may come to fight us. And so we blame our spouse for our sin. We blame our boss. We blame our church, the car in front of us, the hospital. We even blame God. After all, he's the one who made me this way and put me here. But the one person we won't hold responsible for our actions is ourself. And you can find somebody to tell you it's not your fault. This week, that trial of the the wealthy lawyer in South Carolina with a long history, a powerful family, a name, financial fraud, was convicted of many crimes, including murdering his wife and his son. And people were amazed that at the sentencing, the, the man still refused to take any responsibility and said to the judge, it was not me. I did not do it. Now, I don't know. The jury convicted him. Let's move at this point thinking that he's guilty of this, but he's saying, I did not 
do it. It was not me. And the judge said, it might not have been you, but it is the monster that you've become. And that line from the judge stunned people. But here's the point. Every one of us before the Lord, the the judge, is like that man saying, it's not me. I didn't do it. And the Lord says, it was you. It's the monster of your sin. It's like a man with a broken leg who goes around yelling at the ground for why his leg hurts every time he takes a step. But the problem isn't outside of you. It's inside of you. Friends, one sin does not give birth to one sin. Sin gives birth to triplets and septuplets. Sin doesn't beget one. It begets monstrous sins devouring you and others. So don't you ever forget the words of John Owen who said what? You kill sin before it kills you. And you would do better to play with a cornered rattlesnake than to play with sin because sin, when it's finished, it always brings forth death. But what could you possibly lose if you repent? What could you possibly lose in throwing yourself before this king who's died to save you? There's no danger in yielding to Jesus' love. No danger. These arrogant knuckleheads in whom we should see ourselves, they don't want mercy. They want war. Invictus, I'm the master of my fate and my destiny. I'm the captain of my salvation. Thank you very much. Well, the odds don't look good for Joab. They hire professional mercenaries. They amass at least 30,000 hired killers and add them to their own numbers. And when the skirmish lines are drawn up in verses 8 and 9, Joab, the commander of the king's army, finds himself facing what military strategists call a pincer movement, P-I-N-C-E-R, like pincers on a crab. As the attacking army attacks the center, the other sides break into two groups and flank the sides like two crab claws. So now they face a battle on two fronts instead of one. And if they go all in on one side, they risk being encircled and outflanked. In our own state in 1781, Daniel Morgan used this tactic at the Battle of Calpins. The Nazis used it in their blitzkrieg in World War II. This pincer movement, it's a figure four leg lock in military strategy. It's a pro-gamer move. And there's no respawning after this. You're done. (laughs) My kids feed me these things. (laughs) Maybe Joab total joke too to break up the levity of what they're facing. Well, they do find themselves apparently outnumbered and for a moment outcoached on the field. They're being pinched in the front and the rear and soon they will be surrounded. So Joab makes a quick halftime battlefield adjustment. He divides his forces in kind to match. In verse 9, he chooses some of the best men of Israel and decides that he will captain them and lead them into the open field against the best of the opposing forces, the Syrians. And according to verse 10, Joab puts Abishai, his brother, in charge of meeting the Ammonites at the gates. It's a dramatic moment. Here are Here are two brothers on the field of battle looking at each other, taking counsel of one another, pinched on both sides by hostile armies, not knowing if they're going to see each other at the end of the day. This is a war they didn't want. It's a war they didn't start. But now they're here. They're all here. Joab gives two final commands. First, he introduces a contingency to his plan. Would you look at verse 11? Here's the contingency. Joab said, now listen, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. What a moment in a field of battle, in the fog of war. If this becomes too strong for me, you you come help me. And if it's too strong for you, I will go help you. Do you hear the the heroic, steadfast love, sacrifice, even in the midst of battle? I will help you if you are too weak and 
you come to my aid if I am too weak. This would be their we were soldiers moment, their Hacksaw Ridge moment. And with this word from this historical battle, do you not hear the same kind of call we have for each other in our own war? We are soldiers of the Lord's army. That's a metaphor Paul uses. And what are those words written in Galatians 6 that we are to bear one another's burdens? There's there's Samwise Gamgee in the dirt of war smudged on his face in the battlefield of Mount Doom, looking down into Frodo's exhausted eyes, overwhelmed by the burden of the ring. And he tries to rouse his spirits and says, Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon and the orchards will be in blossom and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket. They'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields, Mr. Frodo, and they'll be eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? No, Sam, Frodo moans. I can't recall the taste of food or the sound of water or the touch of the grass. I'm naked in the dark. There's nothing between me and the veil of fire. To which Samwise Gamgee says, Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. If it's too strong for you, I will come help you. If it's too strong for me, would you come help me? That's a moment of honesty in the thick of battle. If the battle's too great, beloved, it's easy as Christians to shoot and inflict wounds from friendly fire on one another. Let's not shoot each other. Let's carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of love. And let's have the humility to say, this is too strong for me. Would you help me? Joab has one final command in the face of such fearful odds. I don't know. This is totally me. It probably didn't happen. But maybe Joab does this. Okay, enough of that moment, uh, Abishai. Enough of that. Enough of that. Enough of that. He has one final command in the face of these fearful odds. And he wants the entire army to hear it. You know, remember that King Henry's courageous moment on the fields of Agincourt on St. Crispin's Day where he rallies his beleaguered men, grossly outnumbered. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the greater share of the honor. God's will, I pray thee, is not one man more be here. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. But he who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. That moment doesn't outshine this moment of Joab's rallying courage in the face of fearful odds. If your strength fails, I will help you. But enough of that, Abishai. We're not here to fail. We're not here to be overwhelmed. Now listen to the courage and faith of the servant in verse 12. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him, or the Lord will do what is good. What a moment of courage. Great dangers, writes Matthew Henry, puts an edge upon true courage. I want you to notice first how unlikely this courage and faith is. Unlikely because who's showing it? It's Joab. In literature, there are flat characters and round characters. A flat character is somebody who doesn't change. Like, doesn't mean you don't like them. Like Poirot, who's predictable, always the same. You know what's going to happen like Monk. They don't really change. They're dependable. There are flat characters, there are round characters who are like ogres in Shrek. They're onions with lots of layers to them. They're complex, sometimes unpredictable. Joab is a round, complex figure. At times he shows great loyalty to David. He even shows great faith in the Lord here. But other times, Joab refuses to follow David. And 2 Samuel 3, Joab goes against David's wishes in settling a score. At the end of David's life, Joab even sides against Solomon, David's son and successor, that leads to Joab's own death. He cuts a complex figure, a complex person, 
Like, like Ivan and Dostoevsky's brother Karamazov, who sometimes is deeply troubled and sometimes deeply intelligent, who sometimes seeks to solve the world's suffering, but also adds to it with his actions. That's Joab. What's the point of saying? It's simply this. If God can use the complex Joab, he can use any one of us. The point, the finer point is this. Anyone can be faithful. God will use anyone who puts his trust in him. Anyone. Because you know it's not the strength of your faith, but the what? The object of your faith. So here's an unlikely hero who puts faith and courage in God. That means anyone can do this. But second, I want you to notice the humble courage. I know these overlap. Here's how one writer explains it. Joab will now apply his forces and strategic genius into full. But as a believer, he remains aware at the same time that this decision rests in God's hands. And he resolves himself to do this. The Lord will do what is good. Here's a great mystery in God's providence. God moves in mysterious ways. This is how you want to win with us being surrounded and outflanked. And this is where you have us, this mysterious way. This is a humble faith and courage. This is what we will do. And God will do what's good. Here's what I mean. Even though we know, big picture, that the Lord wins in the end, We don't know the outcome of any particular conflict you're engaged in at the moment. We have a promise that Christ wins, but we have no promise that we will survive any conflict that we are in. These all died in faith, but they all died. Some died never having received the promise. Some were sawn asunder. Some got their children back from the dead, but some went through the fire and didn't come out. We have no promise of, in this moment, I will be delivered. No promise. That's humble courage. The Lord will do what's good. Faith in the promises and providence of God. So he stumbles up to humble courage to fight in the fray of fearful odds without the guarantee of immediate results in any particular conflict, what do you do? Be strong, be of good courage for our people and the cities of our God, and God will do what is right. The downstream consequences of our faith are left to God. We are those who sow seeds in the darkness. We are those who go forth bearing precious seed and weeping. We don't know whether this will do anything now. We don't know who will repent, but we give the good news. We don't know what will happen. Ours is to follow the Lord's command into church discipline. I don't know if anything will change in your marriage, but as husbands, you better lay down your life for your wife no matter what. That's your duty. In the dark, we don't know if he will heal, but we pray. The Lord can deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow. The Lord will do what is right. Joab, an unlikely source of courage, humble faith and courage. For even though we know the Lord wins in the end, we don't know the outcome of any particular conflict that we're in. John Calvin, he has a series of sermons on 2 Samuel. How anybody, uh, I'm just amazed that there you are in the 1500s and his sermons still speak to us. Here's what he writes on this moment. We must remain in suspense about many things. For instance, when we ask God for our daily bread, and we must, it is not that we are assured that he will send us a good harvest or a great vintage. We should leave that in his hands and patiently wait what pleases him. When we have any illness, we must rest well assured that he's not forgotten us, that, that that we have access to him, and that in the end, that will feel that he has looked on us with pity. The promise of God should be fully sufficient to act. However, when we would like to have the world, the word that today or tomorrow he will restore our health, we do not know, we do not have. We are even in doubt of our own living and dying today. But God's sovereignty encourages our 
actions, our humble trust before him. Be strong and courageous for our God. He will do what's good. Persevering faith, too. Because we're still going to try to take the hill. We don't know if we can win. Doesn't matter, Abishai. We're not here for that. We're here to follow the command of the king, to defend the people for the glory of God. It was Winston Churchill who said, I don't know if he said it. Winston Churchill is the, is the version of Spurgeon. You can say he said it, and then it sounds really good whether or not he said it or not. They say Winston Churchill said in WW2 that when you are going through hell, keep going. That the only way out of hell is through hell. That's persevering faith, his persevering courage. Let us take the hill. Who knows what God will do? So let's take the hill. So once more into the breach, Abishai, for the glory of God and the good of our people. Finally, Joab shows us God-dependent. I don't know what to do. God-dependent, God-soaked, God-drenched, God-anchored faith. Here's what, don't get this. This is not faith in faith. This is not the raw machismo of some last action hero of Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. This isn't raw machismo that you're seeing. This is faith fully aware that there's a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them how he may. As Calvin notes again, Joab understood that no matter how bravely he behaved, all his forces would do nothing unless God gave the victory. Be strong and courageous. God will do what is right. And maybe we will be among those in Hebrews 11 who sees some spectacular deliverance and praise the Lord, he does. Maybe we will be among those who don't. But let us fight like Joab, imperfect Job, fighting for the glory of God with his promises in our heart, knowing the results lie in the hand of God. Who knows what he will do? So do it. It's on the front of your order of worship. Samuel Rutherford gathers all of this together, I think. It was helpful to me like this. He pulls together the courage and faith of God's servant like this. You'll find this in your own life. I now see that duties are ours and events are the Lord's. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold a court, as it were, upon God's providence, it begins to say, how wilt thou do this or that? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to let the Almighty exercise his own office and steer his own helm, and he steers it well. Here then is the kindness of God's king and the courageous faith of God's servant. As we bring this all together, here's what I I think you should see. We should see the motive for the second to be strong and courageous comes from the kindness of the king at the beginning. The amazing love and undeserved kindness of this king to a room full of Ammonites like us gives us courage for a humble, persevering, God-soaked faith in the king who died and rose again for us. The kindness of the scorn king is what enables our courage as his servant. That means we should be laughing because God is laughing. We should be sacrificing because the king sacrificed his life for us. We should be courageous because Christ made the good confession before Pilate so that we could stand before God with courage and call him Father. We should be courageous because Christ descended to hell so that we can ascend to heaven. We should have the courage to forgive others and commit our souls to God, our reputations to God. Wait for his vindication even after your death in heaven because Christ had courage on the cross to forgive his enemies and to commit his reputation to God as well. This is the courage of every day. It's happening every moment with every tweet that you read, every Instagram post that you see, that you write, with every friend who says she no longer believes. It's an active choice of courage for you. Now you're in the story. You're on the field of battle. The line is drawn up. What will you do? Are you Joab? Are you Amnon? 
I tell my kids, I've told them growing up all the time, and now they turn it on me. Naughty little kids, they turn it on me. They have a bad response, a bad reaction. I said, that's because you're telling yourself a story that's not true. You've made yourself the victim of everything that's happened to you in your life. You've made yourself the hero and the victim. Tell yourself a different story. There are other things going around. There's a different narrative than you're seeing. There's another narrative. Here's a story we should all think of this morning, a true narrative. God made you, and you owe him your life. He's your creator. You owe him everything. But you've ripped off God. You've rebelled against his kindness. You're living in the middle of the lie. Your desires are lying to you. The pleasures of sin that you're enjoying, they're making you a drug addict. They're taking more from you than they're giving to you. And you need to be saved. You need to be saved, not from your past, not from people, though past and people can be haunting and have lasting generational influences on us. But you need to be saved from yourself. You need to be saved from God. Do you have the courage to admit that? And God so loved the world, he so loved people like you and me, that he gave his only son, the king, to save us from our sins. And if you trust him, he rose the third day so that all the darkness you feel can't keep the light from shining in. The scorned king becomes the risen king, and he can be your king if you have the courage in this world to repent and believe him. Beyond all of that, all of us face courageous faith moments every day. Several years ago, I read a little book by N.D. Wilson, Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl. Here are some things he says. You ready? Don't resent your place in the story. Don't imagine yourself somewhere else. Don't close your eyes to a picture of a world and imagine a world without thorns and without shadows and without hawks. Change this world. Use your body. Better every life that you touch and you will reach the final chapter. Do you dislike your role in the story, your place in the shadows? What complaints do you have that the hobbits could not have healed, hurled at Tolkien? You've been born into a narrative. You've been born for this moment. Act, be strong and courageous. You will reach the final scene. Vance Habner, who grew up in the hills of North Carolina, I just listened to his testimony. He's now dead and yet speaks. And after his wife died, he said, I found myself, here's where I am. I'm shipwrecked on God and I'm stranded on his omnipotence. That's where you are in the midst of the battle shipwrecked on God and stranded on his omnipotence. And now comes the moment of truth. You'll walk out of this building. We're going to pray in a moment and be done. And you found yourself here in the story at this moment. What will you do? Who are you becoming? The entire world is full of stories. And once you realize it, you have to ask yourself, what character are you in this story? What part are you playing in this scene in the next hour? Who are you? Are you there just to make the actual other heroes look good? Are you there whose life is just going to be a a a morality tale, a cautionary tale to, to other people not to live like you? Is that the part you're playing right now? You might not be one of the real villains. You might not be a lecherous youth pastor. You might not be an unfaithful husband. You might not be egregiously bad, but you are somebody playing some part this morning. What part are you playing? How are you responding to the darkness around you? You're the backstabbing friend. You're the irritable dad. You're a horrible boyfriend. You're the gossip of a girlfriend. You're a complainer. You're a whiner. You're someone, and you're someone who you probably wouldn't want to be if you saw that person in a movie. We all think we're most sympathetic to ourselves, but if you saw it, you wouldn't want to look like the character that that, that you might that a novelist would describe. So think about the story. The story exists. It's going to happen. Trials come. Minor trials. Macro trials. Kids will spill milk. It's a moment. Do you snap at them? Do you lose it? Your pipes freeze. Your car breaks down. You find out that someone slanders you. Your girlfriend leaves you. Who are you? Who are you in the story? What will you do? Sometimes the courage is more ordinary. It's reading your Bible every moment, believing in the darkness, remembering duties are ours, events of the Lord's. Be strong and courageous for our God. He will do what is good. He's the scorned king who died for me and rose for me. Oh God, oh God, we trust in you.